Let's look now at Ruth chapter 2. We're going to finally conclude the, uh, the uh, Ruth 2, the, chapter, uh, the second chapter of Ruth. Uh, it's been a great time marching through the book of Ruth, and um, I look forward to continuing that. I was wondering maybe if uh, Chris and Whitney were going to be here, but I don't see them. I don't know when. I don't know where these people are. Uh, they get married. They take off. God be with them. Uh, all right. Let's look at Ruth chapter two, beginning in verse seventeen. Um, and uh, verse seventeen, when when um, the writer says so, she we're referring to Ruth, who has spent all day gleaning, basically harvesting after the reapers in the field. Um, And so we read, So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you. Father, we live in... a very tense context of racial division, of class division. Father, we are incensed. And that sense of whether it be bitterness or anger or pride or judgmentalism is fueled as we watch the news as we participate with social media. And so, Father, we need this morning to hear from You. I believe, O God, that You have the power through Your church to create such unique community of love and respect of work and family and children that we, your body, might stand as a beacon of light in a very broken world. But Father, I don't have that power. Only you do. We don't have that power. Only you do. Father, only you can change our false thinking Only you can show us 
when we think that we are right, that we're not. Father, only you can heal us relationally. And yet, oh God, we believe that you can do it. So would you do it? Thank you for what you've begun right here at downtown church. Father, thank you for what you've done in other places. And God, would you continue to do it for the glory, your own glory, and the good of your people. Come now by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at the end of chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. And by now we should begin to understand that what we have in Ruth is a model. It's a model for racial and class reconciliation in the Old Testament. (laughs) Unbelievable. Think about it. We have Naomi, an Israelite, here from the beginning. We're told she is from Bethlehem. It gives her nationality. It gives her race. It gives her cultural identity. She and Elimelech go where? To Moab, which is a far-off land that are enemies with Israel. They do not like each other. They are hostile to one another. They need to be reconciled in a perfect world. You have Naomi. She welcomes her son's new wives who are Moabites. And that is radical. Interracial marriage was less popular then than it is now. And yet Naomi, the Israelite, doesn't just tolerate this. She embraces her Moabite daughter-in-laws. To the point that after um, her sons die and she's left with her daughters-in-laws, what does she do? But she sends them or tries to send them back to their mothers and fathers so that they will not perish with her back in Israel. But... Orpah, through her crying and through her tears, shows that she loves her mother-in-law, but she leaves. But Ruth clung to her, the text says, and what does she do? She goes with her. And she not only goes with her, but she, as Boaz said, came to take refuge under the God of Israel and in the God of Israel. She's converted. Naomi loves her daughter-in-law so well. She is such evidence and, and apolog- she is an apologetic for the gospel, if you will, for the love of God to her daughter-in-law, to the point that her daughter-in-law is converted. And then you have Ruth, a Moabite woman. She comes to Bethlehem, and the very first day, what does she do? She gets up and she goes to work, and everything is against her. Everything is against her. She risks her life, as we're going to see. She, she risks um, practically everything to go to the field. And why does she do it? Not just to fill her own belly, but because of her love for Naomi. And so you have in the Scriptures, you have in the Israelite Scriptures, an example of a Moabite woman who is exhibiting utter godliness. You even have Ruth listed in Matthew chapter 1 as a descendant of Jesus himself. 
This is a godly woman and yet a godly Moabite woman. And then you have Boaz. Boaz is a wealthy landowner who doesn't just amass land and money for himself, but he, he leverages his resources for the good of Ruth and the good of Naomi. And so here it is. You have the perfect model, if you will. You have the poor, you have the racial outcast, you have the business owner, and they come together and make a radical statement to the community. People in Bethlehem are talking. Why? Because of this radical relationship between these three. And dear friends, we need to get people talking too. There are two things that I think we can learn that have tremendous impact in my mind for how we should be living in the context that we were dealt. And friends, none of us in this room created the mess that we're in, but it's our mess. We have to take responsibility for where we are, and God has called us to be faithful where we are. Because when His church is willing to do that, when His church is willing to hold the glory of God above personal concern and we're willing to become this radical community that crosses all the lines that are drawn in and by the world, then we become a true and powerful apologetic for the gospel in the world. It's not just okay that we come and sit with each other. We've got to, we've got to do some things for each other and with each other. And that's what I want us to see this morning. First off, I want us to see that Boaz's kindness and sacrifice for Ruth revives Naomi. Look at this ripple effect. It's beautiful. I mean, as soon as, as Ruth comes in, what, what, is, uh, what does Naomi say? She said, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? I mean, her first words were, tell me about your day. It was, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She recognizes godliness... By how this man treated her. It's been a long day for Naomi. On the tail end of a long season of bad. She's lost her husband. She's experienced a famine. She's lost both of her sons. She's now lost one of her uh, daughter-in-laws and she has one. But what in the world is she going to do for her? She's come back home empty-handed. She's the gossip of the town. She has no social capital. She has had a long ten years, and now it's been a long day. As we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, Ruth gets up early and she goes to work. And you can only imagine what Naomi is doing. Naomi is waiting. Naomi is, is hoping She's she's wondering, you know, are we going to have food tonight? Is someone going to attack Ruth in the fields? Is someone going to enslave Ruth in the fields? Is, is someone going to kill Ruth in the fields? Or just maybe, just maybe, she'll come back with food and we'll actually have food tonight. Her stomach was growling. She was trying to be hopeful, but again, it had been a long season of bad. And it was hard to be positive. And it was hard to be faithful And in moments like that, dear friends, we don't need words. We need tangible signs of God's faithfulness. It's not verbal assent and love and concern that moves things forward, but it's tangible acts of love. 
We see that in the very incarnation of Jesus. God didn't just manifest His Word to us, but what did He do? He manifested His living Word to us. The very person of Jesus Christ dwelt among us, became one of us. He's familiar with our suffering. He was cast out culturally. He was not a good-looking man, as we see in Isaiah. There was nothing in his appearance that would draw us to him. He was a man, as we sang this morning, of sorrows, full of sorrows. He knows what it's like to suffer because he's been here. And he knows what people in suffering need. They need tangible signs of God's love. And that's precisely what God gave through Boaz who uses his wealth and power to bless Ruth and in turn Naomi. And notice it's not just a handout. It's not just charity. He doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to let you glean, but I don't have time to deal with you. I've got I've to focus on my business plan. And, but what does he do? He gets relationally involved with her. He builds a structure around her that doesn't just let her survive, but thrive. He tells his young men not to touch her. In other words, not to assault her. She would be assaulted in any other field, and he provides protection for her. He tells his young men to allow her to come to the well and to drink out of the vessels that they use to pull the water up. He provides physically. He provides water for her. And at some point during the day, he doesn't just say, be warm and well fed, but what does he do? He brings her in to share a meal with him. He allows her to dip her bread in the cup of wine and to enjoy. Do you see the godliness of Boaz in not just providing opportunity, but providing relational context and extra care? Dear friends... For us to get over our suspicion of one another, that's what we must do. We must move toward one another in trusting relationships as we sacrifice something for another. There's some background that we need to to lay down. I I believe, as we saw on the map last week, that, that... The church, the white evangelical church, has walled itself off over the last numerous years, really since civil rights, but it was before that as well. And we've walled ourselves off in isolated ourselves, and therefore the gospel that uh, was produced out of that became a white evangelical gospel that reduced the gospel from a personal message of salvation that should, that is so radical and so um, powerful, that is indeed the very power of God, that should motivate us to love our neighbors ourselves and to lay our lives down for our neighbor to just a personal message. Uh, you see, there was, a, uh, there was a divide in the church and some said, no, the gospel is, is, um, is clothed in social action. And, said, and others said, no, the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a message. And what happened is that those two positions became camps. And two brothers that never should have been divided were divided. You see... The gospel reconciles us to God, 
But the effect of the gospel is to move me in such a way to live as I have, or to love as I have been loved. You see, I am an object of God's mercy. God came to me in Christ and He redeemed me. He lived under the law in my place because I could not live under the demands of the law because I'm a sinner. But then He went to the cross and He was condemned for my sin and I could never pay for my sin. And so through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, guess what? I am accepted by God. And that has implications. And the implications are that my eyes are opened to those around me. This is at the very heart of the biblical gospel. The primary attention getter in the New Testament of the community of God was this fact of Galatians 3.28 that in the community of God, in the church of God's people, there was no Jew or Greek. That's race. There was no slave or free. That's class. There was no male or female. That's gender. Every other place that you look had deep division and deep bitterness and deep hostility between Jew and Greek, between slave and free, between male and female. And isn't that the the same today? And guess what? Unfortunately, it's the same in the church. And God says, shame on you. Because the very gospel that, that my son is, the very good news that he is, that he encompasses, has a direction. It is pushing my people in a direction. And it's toward love and self-sacrifice for one another. The book of James says it clearly. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then he gives an example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and well fed, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The intent here is to show that faith and salvation by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone drives one to a self-sacrificing life of love. And that the community of God should be just that. When I came back to Memphis um, to start this church, I was wrestling with something. Um, y'all ready for some real talk? Here's some real talk. I had only given the gospel in my life to middle and upper class people. I had never personally given the gospel, unless I met somebody on the street and it was a you know, quick interaction. To, I didn't know what else to do. I'd always given the gospel to people who had a house, who had clothes, who had food, who drew a salary, who had at least one car. And so I was struggling with this gospel because what I didn't realize was that there was an assumption in my mind and that that caused a conflict. And here's what it was. It was, how can I tell people who are living in deep poverty... 
that God loves them when everything in their lives tells them that God doesn't care about them. And then enter the prosperity theology, which I don't believe is biblical, that says, do good for God and God will do good for you. Bless God, sacrifice for God, you give a hundred, he'll give you three hundred. So I began to work through that. And here's what I found. It actually sharpened my view of the gospel. Jesus is still the treasure of his people. And that will never change. He is the treasure of his people if you have all the money in the world or if you have no money in the world. Because you see, he is the hidden treasure. He is the pearl of great price. It's not financial security that you find when you find... That's not the hope. The hope is that there's a heaven and there's a glory and there's a future and we will all be very wealthy in Christ there. And yet, the Bible also talks about that the righteous don't go hungry. And so how do you justify these two? And then it hit me one day. When we receive the message of the gospel, we don't just receive Jesus, but we receive his church. When we receive the message of the gospel, we aren't just ushered into an amazing, incomparable relationship with God that is based upon acceptance and love, based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, but we also get the comfort of the church. And what I began to see as I read the Scriptures, as I looked at the Old Testament laws, and as I look at the book of Acts, is that the poor among us don't have a prosperity gospel that you're going to be blessed by God by giving a hundred and He'll give you three hundred, but you're going to be blessed by God through your brothers and sisters in Christ that are sitting next to you in the church. When the church embraces the true gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, and the beauty that even this is a gift ordained from all eternity, and that it's all undeserved, it fuels a radically, tangibly generous community. You see, the gospel at work in the church produces an economy where those who have share with those who do not have. It's not the government's responsibility. It's not a non-profit's responsibility. It is your responsibility. And it's my responsibility. John puts it this way in 1 John 4, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You say, okay, well, hey, I love everybody. Really? Listen to Matthew 25, 41 through 45. Jesus said this, Then he will say to those on his left, the God our judge, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. 
I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And then they will say on that day, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And God will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Dear friends, in Acts... We have the apostles creating an office to ensure that those who were economically poor, the widows and orphans among them, received help. And the reason that this office was created is because the church was exploding in growth so much so that the elders of the church couldn't do both. And so to ensure that the right hand of the gospel, the word, the gospel would would continue to be uh, ministered and prayer would continue to be ministered, this other office was uh, created to ensure that the deeds of the gospel would continue to be ministered. And the end of that chapter in Acts 6 says, and basically the church was continued to grow and people began and continued to believe in Jesus Christ. It's not word or deed, and it's not deed or word, it's word and deed. How are we in Memphis going to get beyond suspicion of one another? We're going to begin to share what we have. You know, when I came to Memphis, I didn't know what in the world I was doing. Uh, I never know what in the world I'm doing, pretty much. Um... God's made me look good in a number of fronts. Um, But this came heavy to me because I had really been unfaithful to this in my life. And I want you to know as I moved in, I got used and abused. Um, From one perspective, you could say I floundered so much money because I was an easy sucker. And I've learned some things through that. But dear friends, I don't think any of that was wasted time. I think because of where we are in the church that we're going to have to learn some things. (laughs) And the only way to learn some things is to do some things. And so dear friends, don't be discouraged. If you've started, if you've begun, if you've given yourself away and you're not seeing a lot of fruit... That's not on you. You've got to trust God. And then secondly and finally, I want us to see that Boaz blessed Naomi by blessing Ruth. But secondly, I want you to see that Ruth's willingness to go to work and share with Naomi allowed Naomi to feel God's love again. Ruth's willingness to go to work and share with Naomi allowed Naomi to feel God's love again. There was every reason in the world for Ruth not to go to work. She was a poor Moabite woman, and all three were strikes against her. She was poor, and just like being economically poor in any culture, she had no social or economic capital or power. She was a Moabite, so she was a racial outcast in Bethlehem. She would be profiled by the color of her skin. 
she would have not only not have privilege, but she uh, would have privileges held back from her because she was a Moabite. And she was a woman. And when have women ever had real equality and real respect in society? She was a poor Moabite woman. But I want you to know that God chose a poor Moabite woman to bring his message to us today because he knew that there's some things in this world that aren't going to change, and that is being a poor, racial outcast female is never going to be in vogue. (laughs) It's never going to get you anywhere in and of itself. But guess what? Ruth goes to work. She risked her life. She didn't risk. She knew as soon as she stepped outside of the house, maybe that's why she went to work so early, to avoid the stares of the culture and those in the city. But dear friends, she went to work. I know with walking with many friends that have gotten up And some who have never held an honest job, if you will, before and said, I'm convicted that I'm going to live in a different direction. Do you know who begins to criticize them? Their own family and friends. What, you think you're better than us? Or even worse, are you trying to be white? I want you to hear me today that work is not a Republican thing. Work is not a white thing. Work is not a black thing. Work is not a democratic thing. Work is a God thing. Now hear me, because we hear so much other garbage from the outside. If there's any way to erase all that and just hear me, God created us to work. He did. He created work before the fall. Now, we were created to work in an environment where there was no resistance, where there were no weeds. We were made for real progress and accomplishment, and we don't have that now because of our rebellion in Genesis 3. But if we are going to have dignity as human beings, then we must be moving toward work, whether it's being a student or a mom or whatever our work is. We are to be productive, and we are to be hard-working Ruth could find every reason in the world to go to work, to not go to work, but she didn't. She got up and she went to work. However, to get up and go to work when it has not been part of your life, you need help. You need a network. I found myself 19 and married with a baby on the way, and I knew I had to go to work. And you know what I did? I used the network of the church to find a job. My first job um, was at the university club, managing about 20 or 30 people, and I was horrible at it and got fired. And so I used my network again. I apologized to my boss who had to fire me, who also went to work with me. Um, I mean, I went to church with me, or I went to church with him, and I called somebody else. And I can throw boxes, so I got a job at FedEx, throwing boxes at night. What is the network for you? I believe it's the church. 
I believe we in the church at this point in time in history in Memphis have got to come together and we've got to, we've got to work and we've got to lay our lives down for those who are, who are ready to go to work and ready to see changes in their lives. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 is clear. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. What I'm experiencing personally is there are many jobs, but unfortunately drugs have become so central in our lives that I know one ministry had over and may still have over 30 jobs available but couldn't find people that could pass a drug test to take those jobs. And dear friends, that's a problem. Just like greed, just like skepticism, just like hardness of heart is a deep, deep issue in the lives of those who um, see themselves as self-funding and responsible. We've got some repentance that needs to be made among those who say they want to work but are not willing to make some deep sacrifices to do so. And so where does that leave us, friends? It leaves us all at a point where we've got to repent. We've got to repent of our materialism and our self-righteousness, thinking that we got what we got because of our intuition and our hard work and our, our special brains. And we need to say, if we have anything in this world, if we have a dime in the bank, it's because of God Almighty and His blessing and His gift to me. But He's only given it to me that I might bless somebody else. And if we're on the other side, and we've never held an honest job, or we're growing up in an environment where we're just not seeing that, why should I do that when I can join a gang, when I can have quick money, when I can run the streets? Dear friends, it's hard, but you've got a community here where you've got to plug in and you've got to say, I want to be different. I want to be a man. I want to be a man who raises my children and gets involved in their lives. I want to be different. I'm a single mom and I need help. I can't do it alone. And dear friends, there better be some of us in this body who are willing to drive people to work. There better be some of us in this body who are willing to take care of children. We are going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to meet in the middle. We're going to have to advocate for one another. And the only way we can do it is if we see ourselves as the object of radical grace. We deserve nothing and God has given us everything. And if we simply drink that in, then we will begin to sacrifice for each other. We will begin to encourage each other. And we'll begin to figure it out. You don't need a sociologist or sociology degree. You need the gospel. You don't have to, and here's my point with that, you don't have to be a professional. You just need to be a Christian. And dear friends, we can work it out. And I believe God will be glorified in Memphis. And I believe we can be an apologetic of the gospel. The deep gospel of grace to sinners that don't deserve it but sinners who are willing to sacrifice because Jesus has sacrificed for us. 
Has that sunk that deep into your heart and life? Dear friends, I hope it has. May God give us grace to move forward and to be the people of God and the community of God. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for taking notice of us. We were beat up, left for dead on the side of the road. We were at the bottom of the lake, not breathing. And You came after us. You saw a way to revive us. You saw a way to resurrect us. You saw a way to bring us into relationship with Yourself. And it cost You everything. So, oh God, I pray that Your Gospel this morning, I pray that Your love this morning would empower some to believe You and to walk in a different way. Father, to move toward work or to move toward self-sacrifice, would You work in our lives and work in our body and work in our city that we might be the light that You have saved and redeemed us to be. Oh God, we need You in this time and we need You for this hour. So God, come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.